Welcome everyone to Two Guys to the Dark Tower King, a podcast where we discuss the characters, connections, and deeper meanings of Stephen King's magnum opus, The Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McCurr. You can find more information about the podcast at twoguystothedarktowercame.com. You can also email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. In this episode, we'll cover book five of The Dark Tower, Wolves of the Kala, part two. Telling Tales, Chapters 1 through 4. Let's start the show. In this section, the Cotet makes their way to Calabrin Sturgis, where the townspeople have a great festival waiting the group. Although wary of the newcomers at first, the townspeople are won over by Oi's introduction and Roland's dance. The next day, Roland shares his concerns about Susanna with Eddie, and Father Callahan tells most of his story about his encounters with vampires in Salem's Lot and New York City. He also tells of how he seems to move in between different versions of America and the low men in yellow coats who are hunting him. The section ends with Callahan showing Roland Black 13. Jay, it's our twice-annual in-person podcast. Yeah, this is awesome. Always a different energy when we're in person. Yeah. As opposed to over Skype and hundreds of miles away. Normally, we need the distance so we can just bear each other's presence, but here we are again, looking each other right in the eye. Not awkward at all. (laughs) Anyhow, this was another good section of book. Yeah. I was a little worried about this book coming in. I had not heard great things about it, mostly from one person in particular, but now I'm enjoying it quite a bit. I don't know who that could have been because I'm enjoying the crap out of this book. It must have been some other person that I talked to about the Dark Tower on a regular basis. Real curmudgeon, I'm sure. So last time, we talked about how the section was really an info dump city. There was a lot of information that was just sort of told to us by all the different characters, and they came to some assumptions, and they knew some things, and it was just lots and lots of information. While we still get a lot of information in this section, it's done so in a more organic way, I felt. Uh, We see things happen. King tends to show it to us as opposed to telling it to us. So we see how Roland is inter- able to interact with these farm people who are on the edge of a his land far, far away from Gilead, from where he grew up. And we see the conversation between him and the townspeople about Gilead. Mm-hmm. Then we see him do a Kamala dance, this rice dance that he seems to know of that even the members of the Cotet are surprised he knew that information and could do this dance and sing the song so well. Or that he was even able to dance. Yeah. Who knew? Exactly. And, you know, we even see other characters bring out some things that we didn't know that they could do, like Oi with his very flourishing bow that he gives to the townspeople and Susanna singing and all these other things. So I think it was integrated more into this section. Yeah. And there's this moment when Jake is almost overcome with awe. He's so impressed by Roland because, and and Jake says, Roland just knows so much. and it is kind of an amazing thing. Roland just seems to know something about everything. Everything that they encounter, he knows about it. Whether it's the speaking demon and the jawbone underneath the way station, or the demon in the, the circle of stones when he, he rescues Jake in book one, or he needs to dance the Kamala at Colibrin Sturgis, Roland just pull, pulls it out of the air and does it and knows it. And it is impressive. He must have gotten quite the education from 
not only Court, but Vinay as well. So Court, he learned his gunslinging skills from, and Vinay, he seemed to have learned all the diplomatic skills and magic skills and mythological skills and all these other things. Yeah. Or is there another reason, Jay? Well, I don't know. I, I mean, like, it makes sense that a gunslinger, like you're saying, he was given the best education possible in the time that he grew up. You know, he didn't have access to physics textbooks like we did when, when we were going to school and, and things like that. But he did have, if you will, court educators, right? He got the very best of education. He was taught how to be a warrior and he was taught how to be a diplomat. He was taught how to, it wasn't, it's more than just being able to read and write. I mean, he knows how to negotiate. He knows, he knows how to win battles with his words. And he also can leverage all of this various information that he keeps stored away in his vast mind. And that's what helps him win these verbal battles, if you will. Yep. But we also kind of learn in this book, we get the, the strongest sense that Roland's age is vast. In book one, Roland is, has been chasing the man in black for less than 20 years, I think. Yeah. So if Roland is in his 20s and begins that search, he's tops in his 40s. And then he falls asleep in the long night of the Golgotha and wakes up, according to that text, 10 years later. And then it's sort of maybe it's 100 years later. And then there's some other point in, is it book four or book three, when we're like, maybe it's actually hundreds of years. And now in book five, we find out that Gilead was nothing more than dust for a thousand. So if Roland was born in Gilead and grew up in Gilead, and a thousand years have gone by. Does that mean he's a thousand years old or more? And if that's the case, is that why he knows so much? Because I would think that if I had a thousand years to accumulate knowledge, I'd be one of the wisest sons of bitches on the planet, right? But you're assuming that you spent that thousand years studying, whereas yeah, I've been taking it as more of a Buck Rogers situation where he just sort of jumped a thousand years and he's not necessarily that's true spending that time. So that's why Buck Rogers only knows... 1970s references. Right. Charlton Heston wasn't any any smarter when he met the dirty apes, those damn dirty apes. What the other thing is, is when you think about what life was like a thousand years ago, mm -hmm. we would think that the people that we met, if we were to go, if those people were to go forward in time a thousand years, would not be able to communicate with us in any similar fashion. So the knowledge that potentially Roland gained in Gilead, the dance, I guess the dance hasn't changed in a thousand years when you get out to... Colibrin Sturgis? Yeah. Or is it not really a thousand years? Or it's something he's learned in his travels since leaving Gilead. Maybe every time he's passed through a town that grows rice. Picks up a little tap dance. Yeah. <laughs> so the other interesting thing, though, is that it's not just Roland who seems to know knowledge that we're surprised by, but Eddie seems to realize that he's learning things or realizing things that he's not sure he should know. So when they, he's a little scared about getting on a horseback, which isn't a surprise for a, a city kid, right? Yeah. I've never been on a horse. I hope I can figure out how to do this. And he gets on no problem and it comes back to him like riding a bicycle almost, even though he's never been on a horse before. Yeah. And even the, the little tiny details, like how does he adjust the stirrups and how does he get on and off the saddle and let alone control and command the horse while he's riding it? That's yeah. like- it, it all comes back to me. It's almost a... I forget what the opposite of deja vu is. Pressure view when you see stuff into the future. Oh, okay. There's that feeling like, 
oh, I know what's going to happen before it does. So it's almost like he's seeing a little bit of the future because there's an interaction between he and one of the townspeople and Jake. Mm-hmm. And he's like, I bet Jake's going to say this. And even if he doesn't say this, I bet if I asked him, he would know that that was going to be what he was going to say. So that even it's starting to feel familiar to him in some way as well. Yeah. It's almost like there's this thing. Roland is, is always talking about how they are quartet and that they share Kef. Yes. And this is a form of mild telepathy. And that's why they can not necessarily know the other's thoughts, but understand what they need or want. And they end up in this like subconscious synchronization with a lot of things. It seems like Eddie feels like this is a version of that. This is a kind of kef, like this whole, maybe the whole town is in some way part of their quartet or something. But I'm just speculating here. But to Eddie, it feels like, he already knew how to do this, or maybe he's done it so many times that it feels second nature, but he knows from his own experience that he's never done it before. So how does, how does he square that? But he also knows he's in this crazy mixed up world where nothing necessarily makes sense anymore and just go with it. I mean, when giant robot bears try to rip your legs off, Anything goes at that point. I suppose so, yeah. In addition to that sense, he gets a sense of foreboding from all of this. Like it's not just Yeah. I can understand what other people are thinking to some extent or certain actions are coming back to me that I've never done before. But also all of what's put together feels in some way dreamlike, but potentially dangerous still. Like there's a premonition of bad things coming ahead and he's not sure what to blame that on because the townspeople don't seem particularly evil or bad or something bad's going to happen, but throughout you get this sense of something bad's going to happen in Eddie's mind. Maybe uh, Andy reminds him of C-3PO and he keeps thinking, we're doomed, doomed. You had mentioned earlier that the townspeople might share some of this kef as well. And I'm not sure if all the townspeople do, but Father Callahan seems to directly. Yeah. He tells his story about what happened in New York City with the vampires. And he gets to a point where they need to continue the story, but they need to move on to some other location. And even though they're going from one building to another and it's only a few hundred feet, he's able to tell that whole story in that little span of time. And they get the sense that, was he really telling it to us? Were we just absorbing it? Was it osmosis? Yeah. It's that Kef again. Yeah. Being able to just transfer all the information in his mind just by thinking it. And what could be more efficient? that. I guess only if you're in the matrix and they plug you into something. Yeah. Another thing that I noticed that kind of fits in with Eddie kind of picking up on patterns and things like that is that he has started to refer to various events like he's giving them titles. When he thinks back to the second time they went Todash, he thinks of it as Todash number two. Some of that is Eddie's personality. He likes to just put fun labels on things and that's just how his mind works. And I think King's really good at speaking in Eddie's voice like that. But I also think that this is yet another example of things being familiar and almost organized in a way that it maybe this is a story. And that kind of connects us back to what we talked about in the last episode with the, the meta-awareness of the story, that these are people in a book talking about stories, talking about books and things like that. So if Eddie is thinking, well, that was the chapter titled Todash number two. What happens when we get to Todash number three? Very nice. All right. The other 
big thing that we learn about here is Susanna and her potentially false pregnancy. We had a lot of buildup coming into this chapter where Roland knew that something was going on with Susanna slash Mia and was very scared to say anything to Eddie because he didn't know how Eddie was going to take it. He didn't know if it was Eddie was going to be on his side. He didn't know what was going to happen. And we get a little bit of a surprise in that Eddie's fairly understanding and is like, yep, I get it. I understand. And I sort of agree with you. And I don't doubt that there might be more to this pregnancy than me because I've seen my wife menstruating. And so I know that she's not really pregnant. How can she be? You're wrong. But on the other hand, I have this feeling like she might be. But he takes it surprisingly well for Eddie. Roland even reflects on this, that Eddie has really matured. He's grown up a lot since we first met him in book two. And only a few months of his life have really passed by here. So not a lot of time has passed by. He has experienced and dealt with and overcome so much that it makes sense that he's a lot more mature and that he's a lot more practical and even keeled or level-headed, which, whichever metaphor you prefer. <laughs> it's not surprising, ultimately, that he does deal with it in a pretty level-headed way, but I think Roland was still right to be hesitant because he knows that no matter what, Eddie's still going to wish that the case weren't so, that there isn't something wrong with Susanna, that there isn't a problem with the pregnancy, or that she isn't actually pregnant because none of these things quite square. None of these things quite add up right. And between the continued menstruation, but the altered behavior, and the fact that Roland has had his suspicions that Susanna is pregnant and has been since Lud, which was a surprise to me. Like, all right, we know Roland has perceptions that are beyond, they're almost, they're basically supernatural. Right. But what did he pick up on in Lud? that said, oh yeah, Susanna might actually be pregnant. We didn't have any hints that, that nothing, I could tell. Nothing in the text. But once we got to Wizard and Glass, I think in Wizard and Glass, that's when King actually has it in the text. It gives us, the reader, just enough info for us to pick up on it. Yep. Then I understand that Roland's picking up on it, even right. though it's also pretty clear that no one else is. It is quite puzzling. And the fact that we have this new identity that has formed around the idea of this pregnancy Mia certainly thinks that the pregnancy is real. She's positive that she has a chap growing within her and that she needs to care for it and eat for two and all that stuff. Yeah, it seems that Susanna doesn't even realize that she might be pregnant. Although there was that one passage where she was remembering an aunt or somebody who had false pregnancies, and that's how we get this notion of false pregnancies. And she's like, I'm exhibiting all of these signs and urges and cravings and hunger and all this. And I feel like I'm gaining weight and almost hormonal changes that she's picking up on. But she's still menstruating. She's otherwise a non-pregnant woman. One of the reasons that Eddie seems to take it pretty well is because that he is all in on the tower. Yes. So what Roland is asking him to do to some extent is potentially risk his wife's life Mm -hmm. and risk Susanna's life and sort of say, hey, this is happening. I'm telling you about it. It may be dangerous and we may have to do something about it at some point and I'm bringing you into the loop. So if something happens and I have to take care of it, I want you on my side. And Eddie's like, okay, because it's really the rose I care about. Like he saw the rose in the last section Mm -hmm. and now he's gung-ho. He's all in. He's made the same choice that 
Roland made back underground in the subway station when he was chasing the man in black when he had to let Jake die. Yeah. And fall. I mean, basically, Eddie has sort of made that choice in his mind, even if he hasn't let anything happen to Susanna yet. And in a sense, this very much parallels Roland's psychological journey, right? This this parallels what Roland went through as soon as he met Jake in book one. First, he met Jake. He got to know Jake. He grew to love Jake. And all the while, he knew that he was going to have to choose between keeping Jake alive and safe and getting to the tower. And he knew that the choice was always going to be tower. And now Eddie, he's made the same choice and he's in the same position because he knows that at some point he's going to have to choose between protecting his wife and the tower. And he has made the decision that he's going to choose the tower. I think it's interesting that there is this parallel between the two. And it's almost like Roland's like, this is going to be the worst thing ever, but I'm just going to nonchalantly ask you. Where do you stand on this? Are you okay with this? You're good with this, right? Yeah. It's no biggie. It'd be fun to see if he has to have this conversation with all the characters. Like, he's going to have to sit Jake down and be like, Jake, you know, you might have to let Doi die at some point. And Jake's like, uh, I guess I'm all in. And mm-hmm. hey, Susanna, you might have to let Eddie die at some point. And Susanna's like, yeah, I'm all in. And they'll sit down with Oi and be like, you know what, Roland, Oi, you and me, it's going to just be us two. We're going to get rid of the rest of them. <laughs> yeah. Oi, you're safe with me. Don't worry. <laughs> So that leads me to like a theme that I'm I'm giving this set, this part of the book and that comes from one of the chapter titles which is dry twist. And that is directly like in the text that's about Roland's arthritis. Yes. Roland has this form of arthritis that is sometimes referred to as a dry twist and so this is causing him physical pain and it's debilitating and it will eventually cause him to be completely unable to walk or stand and and it will spread to his whole body and i don't know if it will kill him but it will make him essentially an invalid right for a gunslinger it seems like not being able to use your muscles is going to be it's almost like getting your fingers cut off or bitten off by a lobstrosity well either way they're gone and i don't (laughs) like it (laughs) he no longer has the fingers right well luckily in roland's world there seems to be a magical cure for this which seems an awful like like ben gay yeah. It's a Bengay that Rosalita, who's Father Callahan's personal secretary, personal secretary slash housemaid slash companion of some sort, mm-hmm. who is able to have this Bengay-like substance that's been created. Has like the essence of mountain lion in it or something like that. It's, it's a fancy form of Aston. Yeah. It really works on Roland. He, he's amazed at how it works. And it seems to give him pretty quick relief to his dry twist mm-hmm. as Rosalita applies it. Yeah. And gives him the promise of potential added benefits later for parts of his body that aren't affected by the dry twist. So Roland's got that going for him. Which is nice. So that's called the dry twist. Yeah. But if you want to apply this idea of a dry twist to our other main characters, we can look at Susanna's possibly phantom false pregnancy or the fact that if she is pregnant, that she's pregnant with something that isn't entirely human, as the characters are starting to speculate, that's her dry twist. She is dealing with a pregnancy and the consequences of being pregnant, whether she is pregnant or not, whether it's with a human child or not, this is something that she's dealing with. It has caused her to manifest another identity and everything like that. And then we can 
say that Eddie's dilemma, his choice to put the tower and the rose ahead of the safety of Susanna, is Eddie's dry twist. That while these aren't necessarily diseases or physical things that are happening to these characters, these are at least at some point a psychological turning of their characters. This is their twist. And so in some ways, their fates are revolving around these decisions, revolving around these occurrences. So these are their, their dry twists. I struggle to come up with one for Jake. Well, Jake's not here. He's off being palsy with one of the farm boys, ranch hands. Yeah. And so he doesn't have to have one at this time. Okay. So you saved me from my incomplete. Yeah, it all works out. It, it only affects the characters that are right there. Okay. Now, the other interesting thing about Roland's dry twist is he seems to be suffering injuries that are similar to injuries that King himself had just prior to writing this book. I mean, his hip hurts. His legs are giving him problems. He's in a lot of pain. I imagine that this is very similar to what King was going through after the car accident. You just blew my mind. (laughs) All right. I'm doing a little cleanup here of Jay's mind spread all over the (laughs) studio. All right. We're back together now. Welcome back, Jay. Thanks. Good to have my head back in one piece. (laughs) So do you think that is a case of King being a writer and writing what he knows? Or do you think there's more to it? Good question. The fact that King's been introduced as a potential living creature in this world, or if not this world, one of the many worlds that Roland has access to, Hmm. it does make me wonder. But it could be that it's just something that's on his mind at the time. Yeah. It's odd that the affliction hasn't shown up before here. I think it did show up briefly at the end of Wind Through the Keyhole, but since that's sort of a retcon book anyways, I don't think we can count it, but I don't recall him talking about any injuries. I remember, in fact, in the first section of this book, in which Roland appears, he talked about his hip was giving him problems. And I was afraid I missed something. And I had gone back to see if he had injured it in some way. And I'm like, no, he didn't. But when I got here, I was like, oh, this is interesting that all of a sudden he has this rheumatism that's acted up. So I like to call it bonitis. Jay, you had said earlier about how King can do a very good Eddie voice. Hmm. So if we think that he has Roland's hips and Eddie's voice, it's odd because this is one of the few books that doesn't have a writer at, at the center of it. There seems yeah. to be a pretty common trope that there's a writer who's a main character in King's books, and we don't have it here. So, as you had said that, it made me wonder, does King see himself as one of these characters? And maybe it's an amalgamation, you know, the arthritic-ridden gunslinger mm-hmm. and the smart-ass Eddie. Like, maybe he sees pieces of himself in both of them. But that might be something to talk about as we get to the end of the series and chapter. Like, where does King fit in? Because there's not a a typical king stand-in like we oftentimes see in these books. I would agree. I don't think any one character is obviously king. Jack Torrance is king. Ben Mears is a writer in Salem's Lot. Right. Obviously not in Carrie. He's not one, but he was teaching at the time, so he probably had a pretty good familiarity with schools. So there's, you know, you can see a lot of places where what's happening in King's life or the type of character King is is reflected in the book. Right. The Dark Half is obviously about a writer who's dealing with a yeah. A pseudonym. Like, that seems pretty on the nose. So we learn a lot about Father Callahan in this section. Yeah. A whole lot. So for somebody who hadn't read Salem's Lot in probably 25 or 30 years, I get a little catch up on what happened in Salem's Lot, and then I get a whole bunch of adventures of what happened to Father Callahan after he left Salem's Lot. 
And in doing a little bit of research for this, I found out that at one point, King was very interested in writing a Salem's Lot sequel oh. that would have starred Father Callahan. And then he wrote this book and he's like, okay, I got that out of my system. It seems like this section would have been pretty much the basis for that book because there's a lot of what's going on there just maybe slimmed down into a, because I can't imagine King writing a sequel that was only 150 pages like this section. Well, he might have, but it also saved him from having to, to come up with an ending to the story. <laughs> there's that. And then, you know, it's like Poochie went back to his home world, <laughs> Father Callahan went to Roland's world. Yes, exactly. Father Callahan's adventures really show off Jake's line of there are other worlds than these. Yeah. Father Callahan seems to be going in and out of a bunch of different worlds as he goes into his adventures in New York City and beyond. As he crosses bridges that don't exist in New York City. He's in places where different people are president, the money looks different, and it's just all sorts of all over the place. And he just keeps like jumping from one to the other to the other, like there's almost no barrier. He doesn't even seem to require any door or anything to cross over. And when we first encountered this possibility of a connection, the first time was death. Jake had to die to cross over. And that introduced us to the idea that there are two worlds. Right. Then we encounter the doors on the beach and then like, okay, it's still kind of two worlds. Because it seems very much like that the world that Jake, Susanna, and Eddie come from is the same world. Yes. So this is Roland's world and the other world, which kind of feels like our world, but still sort of isn't, but it's pretty close. Yep. And so, okay, there are other worlds than these implies multiple, not just two. And then, yeah, Father Callahan tells his story and it's just like sliders all over again. Right. You know, it's like every time he turns around, there's just some tiny variation. Yeah. The Golden Gate Bridge is blue. The Sunrise Motel is the Starlight Hotel and that changes. The sheets are pink. The sheets are blue. The money looks different and he just keeps on keeping on. And White like, Castle oh, hamburgers are round. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean- between Father Callahan being a drunk and being freaked out by the vampires, he just sort of rolls with it. He doesn't even get the thinnies like Roland experienced in Wizard and Glass when he's telling the story. And they get a sense that the thinny seems to be another world of some sort. Like yeah. Father Callahan's running away from the low men in coats and he's like, I got to get off the road because they're going to see me. And he just sort of jumps off the road and into bushes and poof, he's in another world. Like there was yeah. no, nothing indicating that he was in a different world. Right. This gives us a feeling that there are infinite worlds. It's yeah. not just a couple of worlds. It's not other worlds. It's an infinite number of worlds. And some of them are so similar that you really can't even tell them apart. And others are so different that there are, that it's the wastelands that, that they pass through while riding on Blaine. The worlds can be so incredibly varied that it elevates the importance of the tower even further. Because if it were just two worlds hanging in the balance or three worlds hanging in the balance, that would be tragic. But if it's an infinity number of worlds in the balance, that's, I would say, the survival of the tower is quite important. Even for us in this world today. Yeah. I'm a little wondering what the point of Father Callahan's story is. There's a lot of interesting things in it, like this whole designation of the types of vampires there are. So there seems to be three types. Uh, type one vampire is your 
typical Dracula. I make other vampires. I'm the Dark Lord incarnate. I'm Nosferatu. I live for thousands of years. Then we get the type two vampires in Callahan's classification. And these guys can create other vampires, but they are so risky that they don't end up living for very long. There's, they seem almost like zombie-like, but they also die from being exposed to the sun. Right. So they have limited intelligence like a zombie, but they have a lot of weaknesses Yes, like a vampire. So they're like, oh, I'm dumb and slow. I'm going to go out into the sun and die. Right. And that's why they don't last long. And then there's the type three. Which he calls mosquitoes. Right. Like they seem to be regular people who are getting through day by day, but still have this need to take the blood out of people. Mm -hmm. And so they've marked them in some ways just by the act of sucking the blood. They've drawn a glow around this person so they know they can feed on these people. And they put this sort of, much like when a mosquito bites you, you have a little anesthetic. You don't notice it at first. Right. Same sort of way, like these guys are in a daze. And so these are the ones that Callahan starts killing. Yes. And luckily for him, they just sort of poof, fade away. So there's no body yeah. to The no cleanup is easy peasy. And once he finds that out, he has no qualms about going around and hatch it here and hatch it there and getting rid of these guys when possible. But then he realizes in some of the places he's been going around New York City, there seems to be warning signs about him. Yeah. Lost pet posters. Irish setter walking around may go by the name of Culligan. And he realizes that there must be something else besides the type one, type two, and type three vampires that's looking for him and hunting for him. And he deduces that because two are too stupid, three are unaware of him. There's probably not a one. Mm -hmm. So it must be something else. And that's when he discovers the low men with yellow coats. Yes. So I was really excited about the low men in yellow coats because I really, really like the Hearts in Atlantis book. and. The Low Men in Yellow Coats is a great story. We meet a character named Ted Brodigan, who you don't need to know to, to make sense of this, but that story introduces this idea that there are these low men and that they operate in our world and they are a threat. And they communicate with each other through lost pet posters. These lost pet posters seem to have incomplete information, incorrect information, but it's always close. And like the ones we get about Callahan, it's a, it identifies like a shaggy old dog with a mangled right forepaw, just like Callahan has a burnt right hand. So they have these details, but they don't have the complete picture. And it's just so much fun how King crafts these pet posters with this slightly incorrect information, but just close enough that it, like, yeah, I get it. I think if I read that poster... And I saw the person it's about, I would know who it is. Yep. And it's weird, though, that with all of this apparent knowledge, they don't know exactly. They don't have it exactly right. Like, why not just say his name's Callahan? Yeah. Right? Maybe they just don't know. Yeah, there seems to be some sort of piece of information that they're missing and they haven't been able to put it together. So they use the lost pet posters. They use graffiti. And Callahan picks up on this and is like, I got mm -hmm. to get out of town. I thought it, the Lost Pet posters were a brilliant idea, too. And obviously King does, too, because he has one of the characters say, wow, what a brilliant idea that is to put, like, easy there, King. I know you hurt your legs in that car accident, but you're going to break your arm patting yourself on the back there. <laughs> I'm still struggling a little bit with why we're getting this story, though. Like, I can see that there's a connection to the Dark Tower. 
Mm-hmm. These low men in yellow coats seem to have a connection. They seem to be the key piece. It's not the vampires necessarily. It's not Callahan. But I'm wondering why King is telling us this significant length of a story in the middle of this book about a character we hadn't met until this book and about events that I don't know are going to have an impact. I'm not sure if there's going to be vampires that show up and if that makes a difference in the long piece. And again, maybe there's more to come and maybe that's mildly fascinating and we'll find out. But there are a couple of key connections. And one is that there is a man that Father Callahan has a relationship with and falls in love with. And his name is Lupe Delgado. Ah, Delgado, eh? That seems like it means something, right? Yeah. I mean, King has just left and right named almost every female character Susan or of some variety. So why why not just reuse that? that? Yeah, exactly. And the story somewhat parallels Roland's story with Susan because Father Callahan is starting to fall in love with this person, but then he ends up dying a horrific, tragic death, much like Susan does. I, not the same, obviously. It's it's as a result of AIDS as opposed to being burned at the stake. But at the same point, it's the character that we see is able to view the death. It has a great impact on it. Yeah. Roland sees Susan die, and it really shakes him, much like when Lupe dies, Father Callahan is shaken. Yeah. And sets them off on a new path, really. It changes both of them. I wonder, is that King just linking these two characters via the last name because of that coincidence, that these are both tragic deaths connected directly to an important character in the story? Or does King want to encourage this idea of echo and not reproduction, but duplication? A little bit, because then later on, Callahan is doing day labor work. And he's with a bunch of Hispanic day laborers in California. Mm -hmm. And almost all of their last names are the last names of characters in the town of Caliber and Sturgis. Yeah. And Callahan notices that. He's like, how do I know all these people's last names in both places? It's an odd echo, as you said. So to go full circle with your dry twist, we mentioned that obviously Jake and Oi aren't affected because they're not there, but Callahan is there. So he must have a dry twist too. Yeah. And that's, I would say, is his alcoholism. It's something that he struggled with his whole life, and it is is the central aspect of his character and his story that we get in this book. It's also, in Salem's Lot, it's the reason for his downfall. I think his alcoholism causes him to lose his faith. The loss of his faith is what, and he states this in, right on the page in this book, it's the loss of his faith that causes him to lose to the, the vampire. Right. The vampire can beat him because he no longer believes just to spite him. He turns him into this limbo yes. creature. And that seems to be the magic that allows him to jump from world to world without even so much as realizing it. Mm-hmm. The fact that Callahan is an alcoholic seems to be his dry twist, as you said. And that's what makes him, perhaps that's what makes him part of this quartet. Like almost immediately that Roland even thinks like, we're communicating via Kef here. I think Callahan is probably going to come with us. If he's alive at the end of this battle, right? when we move on from Colibrin Sturgis, he's probably going to you know, with us. That seems kind of cool. It'd be nice to, to add another person to this. Somehow, I don't think Callahan would like to be involved if Black 13's involved, because as we get to the end of this section, yeah, what happens is that Roland and Father Callahan go to his church that he's created Mm -hmm. and there is black 13 which is this really the worst of them all of the merlin's rainbow balls that exist and even opening up the 
the hidden compartment where it's located just sort of shakes both of them to their core. Mm-hmm. Father Callahan doesn't want Roland touching it. They don't want to be thinking about it, but yet they're drawn to it. Realize something needs to be done with it. Good thing uh, Jake has that bowling, bowling bag. bag. Chainmail bowling ball bag. I wonder what could fit in it. Hmm. All right. Well, that's our major themes for this section that we wanted to discuss. You know, we're, what, good halfway through this book, a third of the way, halfway through? Yeah. I've not seen a wolf of, of, of the Kala yet. Where are my wolves of the Kala? I don't know. They're waiting. It's still, still a countdown. Yes. Between now and then, we'll have to fill in that time with some fun stuff. Yep. All right. Time for fun stuff. Why don't you kick us off, Sean? So Roland gives some really quality advice when they're approaching the townspeople for the first time. They're not sure what the situation is going to be, so he gives Eddie some advice, and that is head clear, mouth shut, see much, say little. That's quality advice that anyone can take. It also sounds like something that uh, the coach in Friday Night Lights would say, which is clear eyes, full hearts. And I could see like if they were a sports team, they'd have that a banner of head clear, mouth shut, see much, say little. (laughs) They'd all like tap it on the way out onto the field, like, all right, this is our content. Go, team, go. Yeah. They like join hands in the in the huddle and then (laughs) head clear, mouth shut. So one of the things I really loved in this section was Callahan's telling his story and somebody says, what in the blue fuck are you doing to me? (laughs) And I remember that King used the exact same curse formation in the Green Mile where the warden yells that. He's like, what in the blue fuck is going on around here? And I was just really struck by that that line. I thought it was hilarious and really creative. I'd never heard blue fuck before. And maybe it's a you know, New England thing. Maybe it's a Maine thing. I don't know. Maybe it's something that someone said to King once when he was 12 years old and it stuck with him his whole life. But I find it immensely entertaining. And so I had to call it out here because this is now the second time I've noticed it in, in King's work. So everybody just start saying what in the blue fuck as many times as you can because it's fantastic. Will do. So Andy, we've mentioned before, is the android robot that's going around giving information, but he also doles out horoscopes to folks. Yeah, very useful. There's two that I want to point out. The first one is to Susanna, which cuts off right before the good part. Mm. He says, you will meet a handsome man. You will have two ideas, one bad and one good. You will have a dark haired, and then he gets cut off and you're like, dark haired what? Demon child? (laughs) Dark haired Eddie baby? I don't know. Like, I want to know what the dark haired thing is going to be, but little disappointed got cut off there. Yeah, maybe you'll have a dark-haired squirrel run across your yard. Uh, yeah, there could be something simple like that, I yeah. suppose. And then later on, he's going to try to give a horoscope to Eddie, and he says that Eddie is a child of winter. Mm. And just that turn of phrase made me think of George R. R. Martin, the summer child that we're always told. Uh, in, yes, uh, the sweet summer. summer child. But not Eddie. Eddie is a child of winter, but I think that just means his birthday's in the winter. Yeah. And speaking of Eddie, Eddie's the best. And I think some of this comes from the fact that I think King writes Eddie's voice so well, like we talked about earlier, and uses him as just a foil for all of his smart ass ideas. And just anytime somebody in the story needs to just say something great or entertaining and certainly funny, it usually comes from Eddie. And when they're at the celebration dance festival thing that they they throw for the arrival of the gunslingers 
and they're kind of talking to they've they've split up and they're talking to the different members of the town and Eddie keeps talking to people who are driving him crazy. And he looks around the room and he sees who Susanna's talking to and who Roland's talking to and what Jake's up to. And he takes stock of the situation and he says, man, she gets the farmer's wife. Roland gets Lord of the fucking rings. Jake gets to make a friend. And what do I get? A guy who looks like Pa Cartwright and cross examines like Perry Mason. <laughs> you just gotta love Eddie. Yep. Pa Cartwright and Perry Mason shows how there's a lot of dated references in this book uh-huh. that people younger than us probably won't get. I mean, could have been Matlock. Yeah. Even Pa Cartwright and Perry Mason are a little skewing old for you and I, but then we get another one, which is shows that this is a product of the eighties slash nineties. And he refers to star search. Eddie does. Yeah. Star search for you millennials who are listening to this podcast. Star Search was the American Idol of its time, and it was hosted by Ed McMahon, a second banana who got paid to laugh at Johnny Carson's jokes on The Tonight Show. That's right. The show wouldn't have been the same without Ed McMahon. Yes, you are correct, sir. So King also shows his, in addition to dated TV references, he also has dated musical references. So we get Rolling Stone's Honky Tonk Woman. We get Elton John's Someone Saved My Life Tonight, which is very important in Father Callahan's story. We get that over and over again. So uh, you might want to introduce yourself to Elton John. Someone saved my life tonight if you haven't heard it yeah, before. Yeah, it's a great song. It certainly is, Sugar Bear. Susanna sings Made of Constant Sorrow, which I didn't realize that there was a female version of Man of Constant Sorrow, which I know from the Oh Brother Where Art Thou, and then I know has been covered by hundreds of country and bluegrass artists over the years. Mm-hmm. I, I guess I should have guessed that there was probably a female-centric version of that, and that's made of constant sorrow, and she sort of brings down the house yeah. until Roland comes on and steals the spotlight from her with her with his dance, but she's got him in the palm of her hand for a while. Yep. Yeah, no one's going to top that dance. So I had another one about Eddie. Clearly, I'm a big fan, where we get to witness a little bit of Eddie's steal that Roland recognizes very shortly after meeting Eddie for the first time. And it's when Eddie is talking to one of the townsfolk and the person he's talking to makes sort of like a snide remark and doesn't really treat Eddie with the respect and the trust that he should be treated with as a gunslinger. And Eddie turns to him and he says, don't you ever speak to me that way again, my friend, as if the two of us were on the inside of some funny joke. That pretty much shuts down the whole thing. It does. And there are a couple of other times that Eddie does something very similar, where I think most people see him, they see a young man, they don't trust that he is what he says he is, and they don't take him seriously. But there is this steel that runs through him, and he very often proves that he has this steel and sets everybody straight. Yep. Without being violent, he just has a look in his eye or a tone in his voice. And he gets the message across. So Eddie also shows off his steel in his bear crap mind. Yeah. Because Eddie knows who Ben Mears is, which is impressive that Eddie seems to know every author that's ever written a book in the world, except for Stephen King. Like that name doesn't ring any bells with him whatsoever. But Ben Mears, sure. The guy who wrote Shardick, sure. Yeah. Stephen King, the most popular author of all time, doesn't, doesn't ring a bell. Nope. So another thing that I really liked in this section was when Callahan was talking about at one point when he was on the road and he met 
somebody named Lars. And Lars's mother at one point makes Callahan a lunch, a lunch that he said lasted for days. Where can I get one of these magic lunches that lasts for days? It was making me hungry just hearing about this, and I don't even know what was in the lunch. I assume a sandwich or two, but... I, I assumed it was just sort of one sandwich that just never ended. It was just this ongoing sandwich. It was like a, a party sub. Yeah, you know, a Dagwood sandwich of some sort, or just one that replenished itself. You just kept eating it, and it just never went away. Yeah. It sounds perfect. Mm -hmm. <laughs> a dream come true. <laughs> so I'm not the one who usually notices sincere sweet lines and poetic language of, of King, but there was one that I caught in this section, and it was Callahan reflecting on sort of leaving New York and, and leaving people behind, and he said, I suppose I wanted to say goodbye to someone and have someone say goodbye to me. The goodbyes we speak and the goodbyes we hear are the goodbyes that tell us we're still alive. Yeah, it's a great line. Yeah. Way to end fun stuff on a downer, Sean. Well, us saying goodbye to you now is the way that we know that we're alive as podcasters. Yeah, that's it. So on that note, that's all for this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. Links to all of our contact information is available in the show notes. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com and our Twitter handle is at twoguysdarktower. You can also find us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash twoguysdarktower or join our Facebook group at www.facebook.com slash groups slash twoguysdarktower. There you can find our newly created 19 Things You Should Know About Stephen King's The Dark Tower The Gunslinger video. Yeah, it's really cool. You'll learn 19 things that you didn't know about the gunslinger. Of course, you, listener to our podcast, are a very smart bunch, and you probably knew at least 17 of these 19 things. But when you tell your friends why you're obsessed with the Dark Tower, you can show them this video as sort of a gateway, and they'll be like, you know what? I'm sort of interested in reading that book that you love so much. And then you can introduce them to our podcast. So Yeah. I mean, if it were five things or 10 things, you might not win them over. But when they hear that it's 19 things, you are going to have a fan for life. Exactly. So check that out. Show it to your friends and family. Make it go viral. And as always, please rate us on iTunes. Next episode, join us as we cover Book 5 of The Dark Tower, Wolves of the Kala, Part 2, Telling Tales, Chapters 5 through 9. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McGurr. Thanks for listening. What in the blue fuck is going on around here?